0: Hi, welcome to this episode of the Voices Heard Lives Empowered mini-series from Power. In today's episode, we speak to Dan Anderson, who works as a regional manager for Power. Dan has worked as an advocate for many years, and during this episode, he offered his thoughts on how the current coronavirus pandemic has affected advocacy and the Mental Capacity Act in particular. We talk about DNRs, COVID-19 testing, and whether the coronavirus has exposed problems that were already there when it comes to applying the Mental Capacity Act. We hope you enjoy this episode. So as as a manager of a team of advocates, what challenges do you think the COVID-19 lockdown's thrown up in terms of upholding the Mental Capacity Act?
1: Uh, well, I think it's presented quite a lot of unique challenges, principally because the way the MCA has been set up was never designed to deal with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I think there's so many unique circumstances that have arisen that, that have required people to think of solutions on the fly. And what we're seeing is a real inconsistency in how the MCA is being applied. I mean, and I would add to that the fact that the application of the MCA, particularly amongst, in the health sector, wasn't particularly um, great to start with. And that's not meant to say any sort of criticism of our, our colleagues in health, but we uh, undertook a project a few years back, working alongside uh, NHS trusts in, in a particular part of the country to help them with their application of the MCA. And we found that compared, to, example, to social care, the application of the MCA in, in health settings is, is not great. And the level of understanding varies wildly across across the sector. So it was something that was already struggling to be applied properly and then a whole new set of circumstances has arisen and that's made things much more difficult to apply. So I mean I think for example the, the, the testing uh, for COVID throws up a particular example of how it's uh, very difficult for the MCA to be applied properly because the idea of health decisions being required to be made by Uh, care home managers or staff within care homes is something they've never been expected to do before uh, and it's just asking them to muddle through it without particularly any new guidance that's from government coming out to reflect that because uh, I think what's happening is people are trying to apply the existing legislation to new circumstances and it doesn't quite fit and what you'll see there is people applying it in very different ways with very different outcomes.
0: Definitely. I, th- I think that's a really good summary of the situation, actually. I, I mean, my my sort of experience in, in practice as an advocate is that, yeah, the, the awareness of the Mental Capacity Act in certain professionals is, is not always there. And I don't think that's yeah. always their fault. I, I think sometimes, especially if it's somebody who's perhaps been working in that field for a long time, 20 years plus, they might not have had that training and that exposure to when the Mental Capacity Act first came in
1: i, know, I think that's absolutely right i mean one of, the, one of the when we did this project one of the recommendations that we gave afterwards was that um that the training around the mca needs to be incorporated when people are gaining their qualifications because at the moment it's a bolt on it's something people are given you know a half day session on at some point every couple of years and it's not something that is is taught as being really, really important when you're, you know, for clinicians for example, when you're going through all those years of university and being a junior doctor and all that stuff, it should really be being embedded at that point so that it's understood how relevant it is to all the processes that you undertake, but instead it's 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 not. I mean, dentistry is a really good example of that because um, you don't really get an awful lot of training for dentists and all of a sudden they might be given a patient with learning disability and told, you need to perform a capacity assessment. You now need to treat someone um, who has issues around, um, you know, who's not going to be able to give consent for you to put your hands in and around their mouth. And I think it's unfair in a lot of ways to expect a professional who you know, didn't in their career specifically um, have to choose to work with people with those disabilities to suddenly have all that knowledge and understanding of how to work appropriately with people in those circumstances. It's, there seems to be an expectation that you'll just muddle through when you find yourself in that circumstance. You'll go away and you'll read the legislation and figure out what you've got to do. And I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Just to give some sort of an anecdotal example as well, we, we, we spoke to a nurse about the Mental Capacity Act. You know, we said the MCA, and she asked if that was something to do with terrorism. And the reason she said that is because her training around the MCA had been 18 months before, and it had been on the same day that she'd been given the prevent training that they're given to deal with Potential terrorist threats and the two things have gotten bottled up in her mind. That's you know tells you how little credence is really given to it. And again, I completely understand it. You know, the NHS is overburdened. The idea that just another thing that you've got to factor into your everyday working—it's a really big lot. You know, it's a lot of information to try and understand, and you're given, a say, a half-day session. So the, the, the fact that the application of it is is wildly different is not really surprising. Not something that. Um, you know you can really blame the people trying to apply it for but it's just something that needs to change fundamentally in how people are taught how to apply this stuff.
0: Yeah absolutely um, and, and then obviously in in light of the COVID-19 um, situation at the moment the Mental Capacity Act hasn't changed at all has it in terms of the legislation?
1: Uh, no it hasn't I mean there are brief mention. I mean when the when the uh, coronavirus act was passed there was some specific guidance that the MCA would not change. And I think that was important because the idea then was trying to remind people this does not give you the liberty to go and start trying to do things differently. You can't change how deprivation of liberty safeguards are applied, you can't change how you do decision-making processes for medical treatment, all that sort of stuff. And that's fine, That's that, that was a good point to make, to say that this doesn't negate the need for it. But what was lacking was then advice for saying, well, how do you now make this decision in this, this new world that we're dealing with now that you're going to have to make best interest decisions for people at a much higher rate than you may have done before? You know, During the peak of the crisis, when you had triage decisions were having to be made in hospitals at a rate that's far higher than you would normally encounter, I think it was, it was probably important at that point to really give some good guidance to people about how to apply the MCA in these circumstances. And I think that's what's been lacking is just this idea of you can't change the legislation in terms of you can't get around it, but there wasn't that advice of how do you now apply it in a circumstance where you're expected to be, to be making these decisions at a, a much greater rate.
0: Yeah, and I think another difficulty is, I mean, I can't speak for other advocacy organisations, but but with us working from home at the moment, which is perfectly, obviously, understandable in, in the context, but yeah. we are normally the kind of guardians of, of ensuring that people's rights are upheld.
1: I had a conversation with uh, the NCA lead, of, uh, a trust, you know, when the crisis was just really picking up speed. Um, one of the discussions was, could we increase the access to the INCA service because of the anticipated increase in serious medical treatment referrals that we might have? Because you know they were expecting we'll have lots of patients coming in, we may need to make triage decisions about who gets treated and who doesn't, um, we're going to have to have a lot of rush discharge, all this sort of stuff. So can we have greater access to the service? And we agreed to put that in place. But actually, our number of serious medical treatment referrals didn't go up at all. In fact, for a while, it dropped. And that's been seen. You know, I cover a, a region across um, you know, the whole central and east of the, of the country. And across all the teams that I, I cover, the number of serious medical treatment referrals did not really increase during the crisis. Now, we know that there were hundreds more people going to hospital who were seriously unwell. Than there had been before, and yet the number of referrals to us did not increase. So that idea that the MCA shouldn't change during the crisis and all the proper processes should still be followed, well, that simply wasn't happening because you know we know it wasn't really happening beforehand. But we don't know how many decisions were made that should have had an IMCA that, that didn't. You know, we because we don't know what we don't know, effectively. But what what we do know is they were happening, and we weren't being consulted at the rate that we should be. Now, again, I understand that sometimes those things may be due to expediency and the need to do things quickly, but I think sometimes that gets used as an excuse to to not follow our process as properly as as it should be. I don't know if that's the same experience you had working under the NCA, but I, I, you know, Did you see a
0: greater increase in SMTs during the height of the crisis? No, no, I mean, I I, I was expecting the same, to be honest. And I, I've had I had one case um, that was a serious medical treatment to do with um, COVID-19. And I was expecting that to be the first of many. And, and like you say, we haven't seen an increase. And, and in fact, across across all of our services, apart from um, mental health advocacy, we we saw we saw a dip in referrals, um, yeah. which which like you say it's I guess it's all hands to the deck to to a point isn't it and people have been moving around teams and, and redeployed to be more yeah. effective in in dealing with COVID nineteen but I I think like you say it is if it, it's a st- statistic we don't have but I imagine it will be quite shocking to see the amount of people that have gone through without representation yeah
1: and no, it underlies with the problem. Because if the um, if the use of the IMCA service, if the application of the MCA had been well grounded and you know working properly before the crisis started, I expect we would have seen those number of referrals. But what I expect is that because those referrals weren't being made, you know, pre-COVID, when the crisis hit, you know, that problem was just exaggerated. You know, the fact that the referrals weren't being made is mean, the DNAR issue has been something we've been. Um, uh, talking about for a long time pre COVID, which is if you think of the, the criteria there, that every time a person who lacks capacity and has no appropriate family or friends um, requires a do not assent resuscitation order, there should be a referral for an IMCA. I mean, there are some circumstances where it may not be necessary, but overwhelmingly the majority would require one. Now, from having done, you know, in my past experience as an advocate, having done uh, paid rep work for uh, people deprived of their liberty, if you go to a care home with a lot of people with dementia, things like that, the likelihood is the majority of people will have DNARs. Now, if every one of those referrals that should come in did come in, we would be overwhelmed by them. But in fact, you know, it, we we get a handful a month, if that. Sometimes, you know, I've seen whole three-month periods and you know, whole quarters where we've seen one or no referrals for that at all, which highlights that, you know, in that particular circumstance, It's just, you know, the the infrastructure for that was not in place before the crisis. So it's no real surprise that when things got worse and people were under more pressure that that didn't um, improve the way it should have done. And I think it's an opportunity, if nothing else at the moment, to really cast a light on that, because we know that blanket DNRs were put in place. We know that there were examples of really poor practice around uh, do not attempt resuscitation orders, and the use of other advanced care planning, things like the respect process. There's all kinds of um, blanket decisions that are being made there. And, the, you know, these are the sorts of things that, as you rightly said, an INCA would pick up on if they were being consulted with, as they should be. But the fact is they weren't before the crisis, and they certainly haven't been during the crisis.
0: Definitely. And I think that leads on to the chilling issue. Since the COVID-19, I'm sure you, you're aware of these kind of stories of blanket DNRs being placed on care homes as a result of COVID-19, really, without without regard to an individual and, and their circumstances?
1: I think chilling is a really good way of describing it. I think the idea has been, again, it, it seems to be a focus on, on expediency and doing things quickly as opposed to um, following the proper processes. And, and again, as you said at the start, it was very clear in the Coronavirus Act that that. There should not be any change to the MCA just because of this circumstance doesn't mean that corners can be cut. These decisions still are hugely important and they, you know, have a huge um, impact on the lives of, of many, many people. So the idea that, that these things can be skipped over just because of the crisis was was never allowed by government, I think. It's, so it's, it is very worrying.
0: Definitely. If we could talk a little bit about the, the COVID-19 testing. Um, I, I've not had any kind of personal experience of having to do an SMT around this, so I guess the first question um, would be what what does the test involve, and and does it constitute a serious medical treatment decision?
1: Well, that that's um, that's a really good question. I mean, looking at it from the perspective of an imca, you could argue that no, it doesn't constitute a serious medical treatment because. Um, a serious medical treatment re- referral must come from a clinician. Now, as I said at the start, one of the issues here is that the testing is expected to be um, undertaken by care home staff. Um, and because of that, there is no requirement to involve the clinician. It, so if a referral was to come to the Inca service, then it would be from the care home staff, which, you know, if, we, if we're getting into the technicalities of it means that it isn't technically it's a best interest decision but it's not strictly a serious medical treatment issue which to me seems um an issue of semantics really because obviously it is a medical medically motivated decision so therefore really it should involve um uh someone who is medically trained now obviously because of the scale of the testing that isn't going to be possible it's not going to be possible to get a gp or a doctor to come in or, or to 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 uh, oversee all testing of all individuals. It's likely to be just impossible. But that does highlight, as I said earlier on, one of the areas in which the current uh, legislation, legislative framework doesn't um, account for this circumstance. So I think the issue there is that it, it technically could be a, a, a medical treatment referral, whether it's serious or not. And this has always been something that's, that's open to interpretation within the MCA. It would really depend on the individual circumstances because if you're going to have to swab someone, for example, then you know if you've got someone with capacity, you ask them if they say yes, it's not a problem. For a lot of people who lack capacity or the or are unable to um, comprehend why this is this is necessary, why someone's putting something in their mouth, it may still for a lot of people not be a particularly stressful or unpleasant experience. But there are going to be some individuals who are not going to respond well to having someone trying to you know, swab the inside of their mouth, for example. Now, we know that there are a lot of um, clients we've had in the past who, going back to the side of dentistry, for example, requires sedation um, in order just to have you know, a dental checkup because it's not going to be possible, given their personal circumstances, for them to understand or be able to sit in a dentist chair, hold their mouth open while the stranger puts things in their mouth. It's just not something that some people are going to be able to cope with. Now, similarly, in these circumstances, if you're expecting to apply tests like these for people who are in those circumstances, how are you going to go about doing those tests? Now, for some people, it may be necessary that you know restraint is going to be required or possibly sedation or something similar. I, I should imagine these cases will be hopefully few and far between, but they will be out there. And in those circumstances, how do you approach that? And I think it's really pertinent to remember at this point that it's not like you test someone once and then that's it, you never need to test them again. If you're going to be testing someone who's particularly vulnerable in a care home where, you know, as we tragically know, the illness is able to spread very easily because it's such a closed shop. So I would imagine you might test someone today and then if someone develop symptoms, or if you have any concerns, you might need to test them again next week. You might need to test them every month or every couple of weeks or even more frequently. I, you know, It's not clear to me yet how often it will be, but it's likely to be a process that requires repetition. Now, if you're going to have to restrain or sedate someone, as I say, it's not going to be necessary in most cases, but if it is, if you're repeatedly having to do that to someone, or you're repeatedly, even if you don't require that, but the process just causes them distress even if they're willing to do it and they find it very, very unpleasant. If you're going to have to repeat that over a period of time, how does that make you feel about where you live? How does that make you feel about the staff who you work with, who it's important for you to trust and have a good bond with, who are required to repeatedly undertake a process that you don't understand and may find very difficult? And um, what I think there is, you know, how, how does the existing guidance support people who have never been asked to make a decision like this before, a best you know, a best trust decision for someone um, like this before. How how do you guide them to do um, a decision like this? And can an IMCA even be involved? Now, I mean I would argue because of the um, the fact that it does have medical implications and you know the seriousness of this, you know, whether this constitutes a serious medical treatment referral or not. I think the serious nature, you know, you can deal with quite easily because, you know, COVID nineteen, you know, does kill people, and if you are someone who is in a high risk group and you're in a care setting, then your your risk factors are, are notably increased. So I think the idea of knowing whether you are unwell, whether you could spread it to other residents, whether you could, whether it could have an impact on you and the people around you, I think it is important to know whether people have symptoms or not. So therefore, I think whether it's serious or not isn't really up for a massive amount of debate. I mean, I suppose there could be circumstances where a person is isolated within a care home to such an extent that they're not going to come in contact with anyone else, and then perhaps that risk goes away. But I can't envision a circumstance where that happens. And even if it is happening, that would raise a whole other set of questions about why is that person being isolated and having no contact with anyone else? So I think the notion of it being a serious um, issue is evident. I think I would certainly, if the care home was to come to us and make that referral, even though the current legislation doesn't really give guidance on whether they should be involved or not properly there, I would certainly take on that referral and expect one of our advocates to undertake it because you know the, re- the requirement to represent that person really is there. And I'd want, you know, particularly given the fact that the best interest decision maker in this process is someone who would not have been expected to make a decision like this before and could really benefit from that guidance. So I think it's um, it, it's really important that, uh, that the INCAs can be involved when it's when these circumstances do arise. But again, part of the issue of the people being asked to make these best interest decisions, not having a history with them, is how will they know to refer to an IMCA? The guidance is clear. They wouldn't have had to do it before. So we expecting them to suddenly, I don't know, via osmosis to have knowledge of a process that isn't well laid out and they've never known about before. And I think that means in the likelihood is a lot of times people are, not going to get referred for this sort of thing, which is really worrying.
0: And and I guess there would be cases that if if a person was properly represented, it could be challenged in the court of protection. You now, as as any other SMT would be.
1: Yes. So um, so the the, uh, the best guidance I've seen around this comes from um, Essex Chambers, and they do uh, make it clear that you know in those cases where. A person's really unhappy about the testing, or if there's real concerns about how it can be applied, there should be an application made to the court protection. Um, But again, I think the concern there is that the people who would need to make that application, who are being asked to now undertake this process, are they going to be familiar with that requirement? Do they know how to make that application? Do they know that that's an option? I mean, I know that I had to really go out of my way to research to find information about that sort of thing, and I think. There's just this idea that people, you know, it, it's out there on the internet, you can Google it. So you, that, that effectively means you now know what you're doing. And I think that's, that's, it's not enough. It means that in these circumstances, we're hoping and putting faith in the idea that the people who are required to make those applications will do so. But I don't know that they will. And I, 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 that, again, not a criticism of the care home staff in these circumstances. I think they are being required to undertake something which is, a huge task and a really difficult one, and one that they've not been specifically trained for or expected to do before and expected to do it well, um, and I think that's unrealistic and unfair. I think what would be necessary throughout all this, throughout the testing process is guidance from central government coming out to all people required to administer these tests saying, these are the processes, these are this is the circumstances when an IMCA will be necessary, this is the circumstance where an uh, application to the court protection will be necessary you know, this is what you can and cannot do. I think asking people to just muddle through it is, is creating a circumstance where things have a much greater chance of, of going wrong. That's how I see it at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would, I'd be inclined to agree, um, to be honest, as, especially given that as advocates, we, we obviously have a professional interest and a professional curiosity, and, and we have that knowledge to look at where these issues might come up and where things might be going wrong. But for a lot of family members or kind of close close friends who are, you know, would normally be acting in that role, I would bet that 99% of people wouldn't know, you know, where to go, where to start if it came to raising an objection about COVID-19 testing.
1: I think it, 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 it's, it's really asking people who, as I said, who have no real knowledge of these processes to suddenly become experts on it overnight while managing a care home that might be dealing with you know, very unwell people. Uh, you know, who were, who ordinarily would have very challenging circumstances, but now have this crisis on top of it. So, expecting to become an MCA expert in the midst of all this is, uh, <laughs> I think, a little unfair. Yeah. Um, and the only way to really get around that is to try and provide, you know, really clear guidance that says, you know, in the, I mean, there is the, the fact that under the MCA, you need to treat a person individually. You need to apply things as best you can to the individual circumstances. Um, so having you know flowcharts or something like that says you know, do this, do this, do this can be counterproductive because it stops people from thinking and puts too much trust in the process. But at the same time, not having any really clear guidance apart from the existing frameworks and legislations, I think is expecting people to pick up too much without guidance.
0: So uh, we've talked quite a bit about DNRs and about the COVID-19 testing. Are there any other areas of the MCA where your advocates have run into issues or where, you know, where you feel the MCA is not being applied properly, either because of COVID or because of a lack of scrutiny from advocates and from outside agencies?
1: Um, I think some of the areas of real concern for us at the moment, um, and again, it's it's kind of the things that we we don't know, what we don't know, are the the accelerated rate of discharge from hospitals has, has thrown up some issues of concern, because ordinarily, you know, if you have a circumstance where someone's been admitted to hospital, um, perhaps someone with dementia who no longer is, is safe to return home and needs to be considered for um, perhaps a move into care, that would be something where a change of accommodation referral would be made for an IMCA, if they, obviously if they meet the criteria of lacking capacity and having no appropriate family or friends, um, and then the person would ordinarily not be discharged until a proper you know, suitable placement had been found. Now, discharges have had to be accelerated um, at the moment. And again, I'm not criticising that. It's absolutely necessary. And, you know, these people have had to be moved out. One of the things we've been speaking to uh, different local authorities about is some of those people perhaps have had to be moved out into temporary placements whilst, you know, a more suitable long-term placement can be found. One of the things I think we'll have to see over time is those people who've been sort of put somewhere um, in a bit of a rush to discharge from the hospital whether there will be proper reviews of those placements in the future to see if they are the best place for a person to remain long-term, and if it's identified that it's not, how quickly will they be um, assessed for where they can go to have a more permanent placement. Now, again, it's not something where I'm saying we're seeing terrible practice. It's, I'm not criticising the speed of discharges, because I think they absolutely are necessary when, it, particularly during you know the, the height of all this, when bed space and hospital was, was absolutely essential, but I think what we'll really need to see is um, how this is applied in the long term. So some of those people who've been moved urgently, do they get picked up and, and properly assessed to where they should go long term or, or do, if do some of those people get forgotten about um, and are IMCAs involved when they should be when the further discussions happen to where they should go long term because we wouldn't have been involved in the discussion for the, for the urgent discharge because you know that would have slowed down the process and again, that's fair, but we should be involved for, for qualifying um, clients when the, the decisions about a long-term placement are made. I mean, that would be the first thing that I think was, was my other concern that came up. The, the second thing would be about the application of the restrictions under the Declaration of Liberty safeguards during the crisis, because obviously you have a lot of people who would ordinarily access day services, who would go out and about to see family, all that sort of thing. And a lot of those things haven't been possible. So there have been required to be additional restrictions where conditions that may be set under the deprivation aren't being met, you know, for good reason. Um, we also have heard anecdotal examples of people in care homes who have to be restricted to their bedrooms for extended the period to prevent um, cross-contamination or the risk of infection when there may be someone else in the home who has um, symptoms. And again, I'm not saying that's inherently wrong, but what I'm not convinced about is that in some of those circumstances, whether, you know, the local dolls teams have been contacted to inform them. We're having to restrict this person's liberty more than we uh, have been authorised to do under the deprivation order because of the current circumstances. And again, I think it's been the expectation that care home staff are having to just muddle through in a completely unique circumstance and do their best. And again, it would have been useful for guidance for care homes to say, you know, if you are having to place increased restrictions on, on your residents. Um, and, and the same in hospitals because of the um, risk of infection or, or to protect people from possible infection, then this is how you manage it, this is how you record it, this is who you inform. Because again, I don't think any of these things will have been motivated by anything other than the best interests of the individuals concerned. But I think how it's recorded, how it's discussed, um, and how it's agreed is probably not uh, very uniform. And I think, again, what it seems to me is just a lot of really important decisions are being placed on the shoulders of people who shouldn't be necessarily expected to make those decisions and, and potentially suffer the consequences of, of, of the decisions if they're, if they're made poorly or incorrectly. So again, I think some guidance around how to enact the deprivation of liberty safeguards in a lockdown society probably would be useful. It probably would have been more useful a, a little while before, but uh, as we're moving away from that part of the crisis now. But, you know, it, it, with the possibility of a second wave and all those sorts of things. I think it's it's something that really needs to be discussed, particularly as I think even as the rest of the country feels like it's starting to move out of lockdown, I suspect if you're in care homes and hospitals, that process will be much slower and you will remain more um, secured for a lot longer.
0: Definitely. I mean, I mean yeah, we're, we're talking potentially six months probably even longer until care homes feel any different to how they are right now aren't we
1: yeah and and as you said before it's the sort of thing that we would pick up on through our our rpr visits through the you know through the other bits and pieces we do as images but at the moment we don't have the level of access that we would usually do and we're relying on um what information we can glean from our clients when we speak to them on the phone or by other communication methods or what we're told by the staff. And obviously, um, if there is some bad practice going on, we may well not be able to spot it in the way that we usually would. So, you know, the risks have increased, in the safeguards or the ability to enact the safeguards have gone down. And I think that that just creates a circumstance where the possibility of things going uh, going awry is, is, is much higher than it usually would be.
0: Yeah, obviously working from home has been a massive challenge across the nation, you know, whatever people do. But in, in terms of advocacy, have you been kind of pleasantly surprised with what advocates have been able to achieve working remotely? Or or do you think it's been a, a massive, kind of insurmountable problem, which has reduced our ability to advocate effectively? Um, I think
1: it's been a, um, it's kind of an on-the-fence answer, but I think it's been a very mixed bag. I've been really pleasantly surprised by the way it's worked in some circumstances. I mean, I think it's really helped our, our staff to, to, to gain a much better understanding of the use of technology. We found that some of the younger clients we work with have really preferred you know, this remote communication because I suppose that's a, a generational thing is that, you know younger people are used to communi- communicating more through technology than, than perhaps the older generation are. And I think in some circumstances, it, it's really worked. And, We found that some hospitals, care homes, places like that have really helped us by being very, very supportive of providing equipment for their service users to use and and ways for us to access them. So some parts have been great. There are some parts where, as I have said just now with the RPR service, for example, where there just is no substitute for face-to-face work. And some of those parts have been, we've been able to, I mean, I've been hugely impressed by you know, the colleagues I work with and their ability to make the best of this. But I think um, when you are working with clients who have severe communication challenges, I think there is no substitute to, to that face-to-face work. So that's one of those things that I'm really hoping to see back to normal as soon as, as soon it's as, as humanly possible. So I, I, as I say, I think it's a mixed bag. I think we've been able to do some really impressive stuff and really – Um, make the best of the circumstances, better than I ever would have anticipated, if I'm honest. But I do think there are some aspects of the work where um, there really will be no substitute for that face-to-face.
0: Yeah, no, I would completely agree with every point you make there, Dan, to be honest. I think by the nature of, of people that get into advocacy or get into health and social care generally, they like human contact, they like helping other human beings. And so to, yeah. to have to adapt to not being in the presence of them and doing everything over the phone or the computer, it has been a massive challenge. Like you say, I've, I've had some clients, for example, with autism, who they probably feel more comfortable speaking over the phone than they would do mm. in person because it eliminates that, that worry about kind of social cues and things like that. So there are, there are examples of, when it, of where it works and where it might even be adopted um, yeah long term but but I, I would agree with you that there are a great many examples of situations where we just aren't able to scrutinize or have that relationship with a client in the same way
1: I mean there is um you know necessity being mother of invention I, I've seen some really good examples of creative solutions to to problems that people have come up with I mean I was talking to an applicant the other day and it's one of the first, face-to-face visits we've been able to go back and do with the client. And the issue is that the advocate wearing a mask and having to be socially distant, the client, the relationship they built up in the past didn't seem to be there in the same way because the client couldn't see the advocate's half of their face. You know, they've got a visor and a mask so they can only see their eyes and they can't really, you know, can't see the lips moved. So you lose a lot of the verbal communication from that. And what the advocate did was taking um, a big laminated photograph of herself that she wore around her neck to help the client identify who it was they were speaking to. And that had a, a hugely positive impact. You, you know, the client was able to remember who she was and and you know remember the, the relationship that they'd had. And that, that helped a uh, massive amount. It's the sort of thing we think that's a that's a, a very creative solution to a problem we never would have encountered before. and it, uh, I think we're seeing lots of little bits and pieces like that where people are just coming up with very novel solutions to problems that we, you know, we never thought we'd have to, to solve, and uh, yeah, I think that, that really helps a lot of people rise to the, the floor in terms of uh, coming up with good creative solutions.
0: That's brilliant, I think that's a quite a heartwarming example, really. We've seen the same, haven't we, on kind of ICUs and things like that? These um, doctors with you know full PPE having pictures of themselves on their you know like on the badge or something like that or or stuck to their uniform so yeah no that's that's really good. Is there anything else that you that you want to kind of mention and get in there relating to kind of the Mental Capacity Act?
1: What this crisis has done is it's really thrown into sharp relief the failings in the application of the MCA that were already in place and I think things like DNARs we've been we've been talking about that for a very long time and have gained very little traction in terms of any change for that, you know. It, it, the only hope is that some good things can come out of such a, you know, terrible set of circumstances. That perhaps, you know, now the rest of the country maybe is paying a bit more attention to, you know, for a period of time there it felt like DNAs were something that were in the wider public consciousness in a way they hadn't been before. And my only hope is that, you know, as a result of all this, that perhaps some of that learning can be taken forward and we can actually see that. That even if we are able to get back to something approaching normality in the near future that we don't go back to the same mistakes that existed before
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the voices heard lives empowered mini-series by power if you'd like to make a referral to power You can fill out the online form at www.power.net. That's P-O-H-W-E-R.net. You can also call our Help Hub on 0300 456 2370. Thanks for listening.